Amen, amen. Well, thank you, praise team. That was a lot of fun, a lot of joy. I don't know about you, but I got to worship, you know, and, and to come up here after, after my time in worshiping, it just, uh, it, it fills me up. That's something that Daniel told me uh, early on. He says the more that, that we can, you know, provide that kind of worship for, for everybody here, especially those who lead in worship, we don't get a, a chance really to do the worshiping ourselves, but thank you, praise team, for allowing me and all of us uh, that opportunity to do so. I want to uh, begin just by reminding you that the series that we are in, and this is week six, we have two more to go because we have two more letters to go um, from the book of Revelation to the churches, and today is, um, is the church in Sardis, the city of Sardis. We'll get to that in a minute. And I just want to repeat what I say every week, that the book of Revelation is confusing and is hard to understand a book as it is. It is meant to be understood and to be useful not only by those people who this was directly written to, originally written to, who were suffering horribly at the hands of their persecutors. They needed to know God was there present in their lives. But it's written for us as, as well today. The approach in this series has been to look at these seven letters, each of the churches on the main roads in Rome, uh, getting these letters that were sent to the pastors then read them to the people, and uh, these are the words that they heard. We're also talking about some key concepts throughout the rest of Revelation because these seven letters are just in the first few chapters, but then we have all the rest of Revelation. And so what I'm trying to do here is take some of the key concepts uh, that we hear a lot about and offer some explanation to them uh, based on some studies that I've done. And I'm not saying that everything I have here is an exact interpretation of it. I know when we get to heaven, we'll say, all right, God, now we know for sure. But, um, but what we do have today is some interpretations based on what Scripture says, and I'll give you uh, the reasons why we interpret these concepts as we do. We've thus far talked about the Antichrist, the two witnesses, the last days, the dragon, the beast, the number 666, uh, God's justice, and today we're talking about what I think are two particularly interesting topics in our world today, and that is the rapture and the Armageddon. I want to begin, though, by just reading a few pages from this book, and if you've not gotten this book, I would really recommend you look into it. Go on Amazon, Revelation, what the last book of the Bible really means by Michael Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N. And, um, and take a look. He makes it very user-friendly to understand the book of Revelation. So let me read these, these pages to you. We're imperfect. We're corrupt. We're messed up. We hurt. How real is that? <laughs> this world can be a confusing place. There are times we wonder if God notices what is happening, as did the people who listened to the Revelation vision. In the swirl of persecution, weakness, doubt, and corruption, on the one hand, along with faithfulness and perseverance and sacrifice on the other, God noticed. He saw a church that lost its first love. That was a church that was having a hard time believing God was still there for them and really loved them, which meant they were having a hard time showing that love to others. We learned about false prophets and wicked people, believers who persevered in the faith. We learn about pain caused by poverty and some of the restrictions put on people in a society if you were a Christian 
and live the Christian life. We learn about martyrdom and Jewish persecution, imprisonment, sexual immorality, worship of idols. We are certainly learning about how faith is being compromised. What God says in his word is being watered down by the watering down of the truth and then false teachings within the church itself. God saw all of that. The book of Revelation is not something we can completely understand, he says. It is not a flow chart that details God's plan. It isn't a corporate report that allows us to have the inside scoop about how the future is unfolding. First and foremost, it is God breaking the silence. He sees, he notices, he cares, he speaks, he is present, and he also acts. Sometimes he acts ferociously and sometimes gently. Mike Newman goes on to say this. He says, Revelation brings us down to earth before it lifts us up to heaven. It makes Jesus' message a personal one, one that opens our hearts to his heartfelt word. So before we get too cosmic and otherworldly with interpretation, Jesus opens our eyes to see our own sins, our deep needs, our persistent struggles, and our very real lives lived between earth and heaven. It's profoundly written from my perspective. What I want us to do today is I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to just look at six verses in this particular chapter. Those are the verses that were used by the Lord to speak through the Apostle John to the people in the city we're talking about today. And it reads as follows, to the angel or the pastor of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him, that's Jesus, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the Holy Spirit. I know your deeds, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's not quite as encouraging as the other one started out, is it? You're persevering, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're not, you're dead. Obviously, it directs him to the book of James, where James himself says, faith without works is dead. He goes on to say, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen your faith. Don't let it die, he's saying. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. You're not done yet. You have work to do. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard Hold it fast and repent. He's saying what you know about Jesus Christ, that he died on that cross to forgive you, it's real. That he rose from that grave, and when you trust in him, you will rise too no matter what you go through. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. And he goes on to say, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet, you have a few people, just a few, in the city of Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. It's interesting here because the word soiled here is really a, a reference to Moloch, the god called Moloch. Moloch was the god connected with child sacrifices. That is what's going on here. This is serious stuff. And he says only a few of you have not gotten connected to that kind of act. 
He said, those few will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Now, why does he use white here? Well, it's believed that this particular city may very well have been the city who started the art of dyeing clothes into different colors. So the symbol, so the symbol of purity and life is white. And they would, they would catch this. They would know he's speaking to them. He goes on to say, the one who is victorious, the one who stays strong, the one who holds fast, the one who overcomes, will, like them, be dressed in white, meaning perfect, sinless. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Those are the words of Jesus we read elsewhere in the Bible where he said, As he who ever acknowledges my name before mankind, I will acknowledge their name before my Father in heaven. And he closes by saying, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, let me talk about some of the facts here about this, this city of Sardis. It was the capital of a very ancient kingdom by the name of Lydia in the Persian Empire. It was an important city because of its military strength and because of its geographic position. It was on a very steep hill. It's positioned along a highway leading to the coast on one of the largest rivers in that part of the world that flowed into the Aegean Sea. It had everything going for it in terms of its proximity, its location. Yet even though it was militarily very strong and its geographic position was on a steep hill, making it a really formidable city to defeat, it was defeated. It was defeated twice in its history. Jesus knew this is why he spoke to them about this. Because they needed to wake up. Because why were they defeated? Because they didn't post a guard who could stay awake to watch the enemy that just went up the hill with no one noticing and took them out twice. Well, not only had they failed to position a guard to protect them at the gate of the city, they are failing to place that guard for their hearts and their minds as well. They let the world convince them of things that were ungodly because that was what the world said was accepted. And that's what you needed to accept now to be considered tolerant and one of us. Maybe we've heard some of those words today, huh? That's what's happening and they'd given up. And so basically, God is saying, wake up. Wake up because you have work to do. You know, when you read the book of Revelation, sometimes it is scary, and sometimes we think, well, that certainly doesn't have anything applicable for me in my life. But I'll tell you what, when you think about this city, this church in the city of Sardis, if you think that God wrote it only for that city, then we need to review the world that we live in now. We need to look at the culture and the issues that we face as a church as well. It is so easy for the Christian church, especially in our society, to get caught up in being so self-absorbed, so inwardly focused, because we're scared. We're scared to step out. Oh no, we can't preach this. We can't preach that. We might get thrown in prison. Oh, we can't stand up for that. We can't talk politics. We can't talk values. We can't talk about abortion anymore. Why? Because that's a political issue. Well, it's a biblical issue. But those are the kind of things that cause churches to turn inward and to be self-absorbed. And so we just, we are more concerned sometimes about the club that we have, the members that come to church on a regular basis. 
and we do what we think is best for those who are still here. Yeah, I get to sit where I sit, and it sure ticks me off when somebody else is sitting in my place. You know I know where you all sit, because I see it all the time, and I know when you've been moved. And sometimes I get to watch when you come in, and you look at somebody, and you kind of go, huh. And you said someplace else, but you were thinking something. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? But if you haven't noticed, this church is changing. This church is growing. We were just looking the other day at this, and just last weekend it was like 480 in attendance here. But beyond that, there was over 350. That is a conservative estimate of people that are online right now. That's over 800 people worshiping here. I say that just to give us a sense that, 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 that the church, Good Shepherd, is much bigger than just this. But not only is Good Shepherd, but the Christian church. There are millions of Christians with us right now worshiping all over the world as we are, saying, God, help me be faithful to you. Wake me up where I have fallen asleep. Open my eyes to where I become blind and my ears to where I become deaf because I'm not listening to you. And that's what God's hope and prayer is for these people here to wake up because they have work to do. Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, I want to worship how I want to worship. I don't want any changes. Well, we got a big change right now. We got Daniel Decker here. He's a change. You know, I told him, I said, yeah, your first few weeks here, make the changes. That's when you got change in the bank. <laughs> so make the changes. Because you know what? God has uniquely gifted him to lead people in worship. Let's see where God leads him. And then God leads us. But that's change. All kinds of change happen. And then I think one of the biggest challenges that we have as Christians in this world is we say, you know what? It's a non-communion Sunday. I think I can get by with 60 minutes this week. But Pastor Marty's preaching. It might be 70. Right? Think, oh, it's communion. I got to add another 10 for that. Now we're talking about 75, 80 minutes. And if I get a taco and a cup of coffee and a donut, that's another 15. Hey, I almost have two hours in for worship. I guess I can go out from here and live the rest of my life the way I want. You know, that's called cheap grace. And I've heard people say, you know, they say, you know, we're not saved by grace alone because that's cheap grace. Well, they're wrong. That's not the same. All right. We're saved by grace alone, but that does not mean we get to live however we want. I like to say it this way. The grace of God is amazing, and you're saved by grace alone. Now act like it by saying thank you to God with your life. That's what, that's what God is saying. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. I love you so much. I've, I've given it all to you. It's going to be okay. Now live like you trust, like you believe in me as your Savior. That's what he's saying. Live a life that begs the question. God has got a mission for us. In fact, let me make this personal. God has a mission for you, each and every one of you. I like to say, if you are breathing and believing, you got a call on your life to live for him. You may not know what that is right now, but he will let you know if you open your eyes and your life up to that. We are called by God to get fed in here so that we can go out there and ask God to open our eyes to see the needs of people. 
and they give us what we need to meet those needs as best we can. The most important need is to know they're loved and they're forgiven and they have a Savior in Jesus Christ. God has put us in the lives of others so that we can wake them up. How can we wake anybody else up if we aren't awake ourselves? And that's his point here. He's saying, believe, hold true to the fact that when Jesus died on that cross, it works for you. That's all you need. Wake up to that and share that truth and know that because he rose, so will you and all who trust in him as their Savior. Here was the problem with this church in, in, in Sardis. With all the persecution that they're, that they're dealing with, they're just passing time. You can go into 1 Thessalonians, kind of find the same thing. They're just waiting time out. They don't really know what to do with the world anymore. They're trying to separate themselves from it, and that's what these people are doing too. They're waiting on Jesus to take them home. Ever been there? Okay, come on, Jesus, you can come anytime. I bet I talk to half a dozen people at least every week who think that and who tell me that. says, I'm ready. I just want to go. And I know you're ready, but it's not your time. Well, can't you make it my time, Pastor? No, I can't do that. That's God's call. That's, that's not your call. That's not my call. But if you imagine being in a culture, though, where all your friends and family are getting killed because they believe in Jesus and they refuse to recant it. I mean, they're getting, they're getting crucified on crosses. They're getting burned alive. They're getting, they're getting put in brass bowls like Antipas and, 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 and burned just because of the heat of the day and the sun. And then fires sometimes. It's horrendous. I'd be right there with them screaming, God, take me home. This is, this is really hard. I want out of here. But that's not their call. And that's not ours. I think God's message to them and to us today is no matter what kind of pain and suffering you're in, no matter how good your life is, we still got a job to do. As long as we're here, we have purpose in being here. How long is that going to be? This is how long? To the end. How long is that? I have no idea. <laughs> because that's the timing of God. There are no early outs, as some like to think. One of the early outs, people hope, is Jesus comes back in my lifetime. I know I'd like that too, but I can't wait on that. I mean, that's God's call. But I want to talk about that for a second. I want to review what the teaching, the biblical teaching is of Christ's second coming. Because he says very clearly, he says it to them, he says it in other parts of the scripture, that we're not going to know when Jesus is going to come back. It could be 100,000 years from now, 1,000 years from now, it could be tomorrow, it could be today, when you leave outside of here, anytime. But when it does come, so does the judgment. And all people are going to go to one place or another in the final judgment, to heaven or to hell. That is the reality. Now, there are some people who claim to know when Jesus is coming back. Anybody here know anybody like that? Who kind of pretends they think they know when Jesus is coming back? Or about, you know, they call them watch days now because all the predictions are, have been wrong so far. They take a verse like this in Revelation 3, verse 3. It says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And they say, well, see, all you got to do is wake up. And if you wake up, and then you, then you can figure it out, and you can know. Really? 
Well, I want to read you something out of Matthew 24, verse 36. It says, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun. So what does that mean? Jesus was asleep? The angels were asleep? That's not what it means. It says only the Father in heaven knows. It goes on to say, so you must be ready. That's the point. You must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Over and over and over again. That's what the Bible teaches us. And today, once again, we're hearing Jesus say, no matter what kind of pain and suffering that any of us are experiencing in this life, we need to be faithful to God in how we live our lives to the end, however long that is. Not everyone wants to hear that. Not at all. With that said, I want to talk about what I call the elephant in the room when we talk about Revelation, because it, 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 whatever you teach Revelation, I think one of the biggest issues that people want to bring up is the, the concept of what's called the rapture. You see, that's what we call it now, because in this day, when these people had it, they had no idea what that was, because that wasn't in the Word anywhere they read, all right? And most of those today who hold the idea of a rapture um, meaning that, that believers are going to be taken up and everybody else is going to be given a second chance. That's kind of what that means. There's going to be a period of time where there's major tribulation and you could be a post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, whatever. It doesn't really matter. But um, they say that everybody who gets left behind, like the Left Behind series, is going to get a second chance uh, to accept Jesus as their Savior and be saved. Now, is there any evidence in the Bible for this teaching? That's a good question to ask. Where do you get that idea? I've asked that question to a lot of people. Where does it say in here that Jesus will give a certain segment of humanity, of humanity at a certain point in history a second chance to believe in him? Now, let me save you some time. It doesn't. It does not say that in the Bible. So where do we get this idea? Well, well some of the people, some of the teachings that are not clearly stated in the Bible is because we're putting stuff into the Word rather than just pulling out of the Word. And that, that's what happens. Now, with that said, there are a couple key passages that I want to share with you because when you do ask somebody that, they're going to point to these passages and maybe some more, but these are the two key ones. And the first one is Matthew 24, 37 to 41. That's a follow-up on no one's going to know. No one's going to know the time when Jesus is going to come back. It says this, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, what's that about? It's about Jesus coming back unexpectedly, period. That's it. You can't take all these different ideas and connect it to it. People try to do that. And, and, and especially with this next verse, it says, And then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a new hand mill or a hand mill. One will be taken, then the other left. And they say, see, there you go. That's the rapture. Well, the, 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 the problem here is this. What's clear here is Jesus saying, What happened in the days of Noah is like what's going to happen at his second coming, it's going to be how? Unexpected. All right? No one's going to know. What happened in the days of Noah, though? 
those who were taken away were those who didn't expect the floodwaters to come, right? They weren't ready and they drowned. These were not believers who were taken away. They were the unbelievers. The believers were left in the boat. So this is not like the rapture teaching. It is the exact opposite. The exact opposite. Yet this is just one scripture that those who believe in the rapture support you for, for that view. Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17. For the Lord himself would come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and with a trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. I love that because if Jesus comes back today, I'll tell you what, even the humidity would not bother me at all because that means we'd be flying. We would just be lifted up into the air. We'd be caught up in the air to be with Christ. I, that just excites me. Jesus, come now. Anyway, and he goes, he goes on to say here that after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Here's, here's the irony here. Those who believe in the rapture like you, you read about in the Left Behind series, they teach that it's a secret rapture. It happens secretly, and people are left scratch their head going, what happened? I find that hard to believe when it's a loud command. It's the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call, God, and people are flying in the air, all right? And the rest of Scripture tells us when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. People will know what happens. So what is it about the rapture? It's a relatively new teaching in the early 1800s, mid-1800s. It was uh, picked up by a man by the name of Darby, called Darbyanism, um, who got it from a lady who almost died of, of fevers, and she came up with this concept, and because she got well, people thought, well, that must be right. You know, she must have heard from the Spirit. That's why she was healed. And so Darby talks about this, and he comes up with dispensations in the history of time. What I've, I've always found ironic about it is that the period of the church isn't one of them. We're called the parenthesis. Okay, there's parentheses put around the church. That's the non-Jews who are believers in Jesus Christ, all right? We are an accident. And so the rapture is to get rid of the accident so you, the Jews get connected again and get a second chance to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Interesting. Here's the challenge we have when we try to interpret certain books of the Bible, like the book of Revelation, uh, uh, parts of Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, and, and, and so forth. What I have found to be the major cause of differing interpretations has to be with how you view uh, the word. If there's inconsistency in how you determine or what you determine to be figurative and literal language, especially in the book of Revelation, you're going to run into problems. What's going to happen is you either have some guide to tell you what it is, but even then you're going to run into problems. So you're left with picking and choosing because not everybody's going to use the same guy. Why do you think we have, I mean, thousands of different, different teachings about some of the same concepts in this book alone? People are picking and choosing. What do I want it to say? Here's what I'm going to make it say. That goes back to us placing into the Bible what we want it to say rather than taking out of the Bible what God wants us to know. That can get you into trouble. Now, I want you to mark this down. An example is chapter 20. Chapter 20 of Revelation is a very interesting chapter. In chapter 20, a lot of things are mentioned, like a thousand-year reign. That's mentioned there. 
But the question is, is it a thousand years, a literal thousand years, or is it figurative? Especially since nothing else in that chapter is literal. Otherwise, I'd say, does the angel bind Satan with a literal chain? It says that. Does he really got a chain on him? What kind of chain is it? Is Satan actually a dragon? Well, we know that's not the case. He might come in the form of a dragon, but he's not a dragon. Are Gog and Magog actual nations that will rise up to be called by that literal name? See, if, if all these things are to be interpreted figuratively, then why not the thousand years? Especially since we have biblical precedent for interpreting the thousand years figuratively. Let me give you some examples. In Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, God keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love them, love him. Well, does that mean does he quit loving people in the thousandth and first generation? If it's going to be literal only? Or how about this one, Psalm 50 verse 10? Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, does this mean that God owns only the cattle on a thousand hills? And not all the rest of the hills the cows are on? Here's something else. If Revelation 20 is to be taken literally, then only souls come alive and reign with Christ. Not the bodies, just the souls. And it's only those souls who've been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's very clear about that. And then only those souls who've been martyred a certain way. They had their heads cut off. All right? So you only have hope of reigning with Christ, if you take this literally, if you're murdered for your faith in Jesus by having your head cut off. Here's my point. <laughs> don't get your head cut off. You don't have to. You can't pick and choose which parts of Revelation you interpret literally or figuratively. You need to be consistent. To be consistent. Now I know this sounds more like a Bible study than it is proclamation. I, I, I hope it's both. But my point is, is when you really study the book of Revelation and you let, you let God teach you and guide you rather than imposing your own ideas into it. Just let God speak out of it. It makes a whole lot more sense and gives you a whole lot more hope. And I want to close this message by reading something else from Mike Newman in his book because it's on the issue of Armageddon. All right? And I want to, if you want to go to Revelation chapter 16, it talks about Armageddon. And I don't know how many movies are written about that. I think Bruce Willis was in one and, and some others. All the, the, you know, lots of death and destruction. Well, it's fascinating because it does talk about it. It says they gathered them into the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. All right? Which is interesting to me right there because in the book of Revelation, what Jesus is doing is he's bringing the people back to the Old Testament. Did you know that? Okay? It's a Hebrew word, Armageddon. He says it right there. And what's interesting is all the, all the plagues in Revelation, you know what they're representative of? Go back to the book of Exodus. You're going to find the same plagues there because God is saying, just as I delivered the people from Egypt through the use of those plagues, so am I going to bless you through them too. That's the connection. See, we miss that today. We make stuff up then, but let's not do that. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. It is done. Now, I want to share this with you because what it tells us in Revelation 16, 16 is that this battle never happened. It never happens. Think about it logically. God is God. Are you going to try and take him on? 
Nobody can take them on because God is the creator of all that is. Everything else is a creation of God's. You call God on your side, nothing can stand against you. That's what he tells us in his word. As soon as all the enemy forces of the world are gathered together, the battle never happens. And the voice from the throne cries out, it is done. There is no battle of Armageddon, Michael Newman says. Teachers who talk about a terrible war to end all wars at the end of the world are off target if they try to connect it to Armageddon. The destruction of the enemy comes with decisive swiftness. No believer is harmed. There is no defense. It never appears that the God, true God will be overrun. It is done is one word. You know what else is one word? When Jesus was on that cross and he said one word to Telestai, you know what that word means? It is finished. It is finished. I did it all. Your sins are forgiven. That's the message these people are hearing. That's the message God wants us to hear, that in Jesus Christ we have it all. In one of the most terrifying books in Reve or, or chapters is 16 in Revelation. It's a chapter of God's salvation. That's what it's about. And I want to share this with you because I just love his prose. I love how he writes. He says, if we have forgotten the mystery and the power of the faith the true God has entrusted to us, it is time to wake up. If we have forgotten the awe and the majesty of living in the presence of God, it's time to remember. If Christianity has become all about business and busyness, if faith in the Savior has become all about political influence or ecclesiastical church power, it is time to repent with all our hearts because this is real. Are we, I want you to listen to this next part. You think about the world we're in now. It's what these people were experiencing. Are we as God's people reflecting who he really is? Are we? What happened to the simplicity, the selflessness, and the ethical leadership of God's people? Oh, God, help us. What happened to the devotion of God's people to prayer and the reading of his word? What happened to growth and maturity among God's people? Where is our dependence on the powerful and wise influence of the Holy Spirit? Where are the certainty and courage of living according to God's ways rather than the ways of the world? Where is the boldness and excitement to testify to the one who has conquered death, to stand up for Jesus? Are believers in Christ living as bright lights in this dark and empty world? The book of Revelation, he says, is shouting, wake up. We have been given a compelling, transcendent, life-transforming gift. It is real, and it is meant for sharing. Will we live it and bring it to the world? The time is short, and the time is now. If you've seen what I've seen on the news of late, I think you would agree. The time is short, the time is now. No matter where we are at in our lifespan, our temporal lifespan right now, we only have so much time to be able to share the love of God with the people in our lives. And no matter what you believe about the end times, you may walk out of here going, well, that preacher was wrong. I believe in the rapture. I got this, I got that. You may be a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, an amillennialist. I'm going to tell you what I am. I'm a panmillennialist because I believe in the end it's all going to pan out. All right. I don't know, but I know God is going to give us victory because that is his promise. So what God is saying, 
if you're with your friends and your family and you're sharing with them how tough your life is, remember this. Jesus is calling you to be there for them right to the end because people's lives are at stake. And God wants us to wake up, help people get ready, your kids, your husband, your wife, your parents, your cousins, your nephews, your neighbors, the people you work with, your boss, your employees. God doesn't want to lose anyone. And he's saying to these people in Sardis and to us right here in Cedar Park, so keep believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that his death forgives you. He paid the penalty. And his resurrection gives you victory and all who trust in him. That's what God wants us to believe, to hold fast to, and to share with the world. Because when we do, no matter what happens in your life or in mind, you can have confidence that in the end, say it with me, everything is going to be okay. In Jesus' name.